Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 162. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you will be with us tonight. Help us to understand the text. Help us to appreciate the truths that are contained therein and help us to take them to heart. Let the Holy Spirit take these truths and hide them deep down in our heart, permeate through our very being, so that we might be pleasing to you, so that we can walk in your ways and make a difference and an impact in the world around us for your glory and for your kingdom. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuvaba Harvest in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at www.graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us week after week during our Shabbat services. Likewise, I've got my own YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you popped in and took a look around as well. Find me on youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetzay Torah Ministries, all one word spelled out there. Make sure you uh, subscribe to my channel, hit the uh, thumbs up. If you like the content, hit the bell for notifications there as well, so you can stay in the loop and know when I'm uploading content. Be sure to um, leave comments and share the content with other people in your social media circles, okay? Let's turn to our study in the book of Romans. Let's turn to Romans 14 unplugged, feats and fast and food. Oh my. We left off last week with a quote from Tim Haig from his uh, Romans commentary, and we're talking about Romans 14 and the issues surrounding table fellowship in Paul's day and how this is relevant for us today. Let's just jump right into, I'm going to back up and read Tim Haig's uh, Romans uh, commentary quote uh, from my uh, that I pulled into my uh, commentary, which is available at my own website at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Love to have you uh, hop on over to my website and take a look around as well. Um, but this is a definition that I, or I'm sorry, this is a commentary that I put together on Romans 14 entitled uh, Romans 14 Unplugged Feasts and Fast and Food. Oh my. Here's what Tim Haig has to say. We're talking about, we're interacting with a part of um, Paul's letter in Romans where he says, it's true, I'm paraphrasing, it's true everything is clean. But for those people who consider it not clean, then, you know, for them it's unclean and um, all things are clean, but it's wrong for anyone to use food to judge his brother. And so it's within that context of Paul's words about talking about um, nothing is unclean in of itself, like he said way up in verse 19. And then in 20, it's true that all things are clean. And the reason we're talking about this is because by today's modern Christian interpretation, there are differences of opinion as to whether Paul is uprooting Torah commandments and he's actually um, giving us Christians the license to uh, disregard what God considers clean and unclean animals from the Levitical perspective. If Paul says that nothing is unclean in of itself and then he comes right around and says, it's true all things are clean then does this mean we don't have to keep clean and unclean according to Torah anymore? Has the New Testament replaced the Old Testament definitions of clean and unclean? Has Paul just wiped out God's definitions? That's really the question on the table, pun intended. 
Here's what Tim Hague has to say. The definition of clean and unclean, we're talking about English, by the way, it comes from the Torah, not from man. Obviously, we're talking about English words when we say clean and unclean. We're, we're, I haven't even gotten to the Hebrew or the Greek yet. Um, but keep in mind that uh, when we see English in our Bibles, it evokes a certain definition that we have in our mind. So regardless of what Hebrew or Greek word lies underneath our English, if we see in our Bible where it says clean and unclean in one part of our Bible, like say Leviticus, and we read those same words, clean and unclean, in English, in the New Testament, it's easy to assume that they are talking about the same definitions. But unfortunately, translators aren't always consistent. I'm not faulting them. I'm simply saying this is the reality that we live with when we're talking about translations. We have bias built into the translation. It's impossible to get away from that. So a translator decides whether he thinks that those words should match up from Old Testament to New Testament. Unfortunately, they don't always do so. It'd be better if they did, but they don't. That's why we have to do our do our homework and go back on our own and and figure out what original word under is underneath this English and does it match up with something that was said earlier. Uh, Tim Hake continues. Therefore, any meat declared edible by God should not be ruled unclean by man. So, um, if God says that um, lamb is edible. It's clean. It comes from an animal that's defined as clean. When we read the Leviticus, calf is or a cow. I'm sorry, cow is also a clean animal. Therefore, meat derived from the cow is uh, can be usable for food items. Now, again, I'm not even going to touch on that issues of making sure that the blood has been drained out and it's been. Uh, uh, offered up to God in proper sacrificial procedure and things like that. I'm not talking about all of that per se because a lot of that's rooted in the um, uh, the ritual of animal sacrifices. I don't want to get into that just yet. But the general generic point that Tim Hicks trying to bring up that's relevant for us today from 21st century perspective is that if God says it's permissible, the animal, then we can derive meat products from that permissible animal and generally speaking we're within the boundaries of keeping the commandments of God no person should be allowed to come along uh, after God's commandment and point at an animal and say you can't eat that because of XYZ this was happening in Paul's day we had otherwise no otherwise perfectly permissible food from God's perspective that was being uh, defined by religious people I'm going to talk about this later on my commentary, as not fit for consumption. And therefore, it's almost as if we were um, improving on God's definitions, or worse yet, we were somehow um, upsetting God's uh, commandments. God commanded us to do certain things, and yet people were coming along and preventing us, for us, I say, those who want to be uh, biblically pure, and keep God's commandments. They're preventing us from keeping God's commandments. And so, in the end, it's really what Yeshua said. It's, it's the traditions of men that come along and cloud the issue. If we would just read the Word of God, accept it at face value, for the most part, um, and do our best to uh, walk into what God asks us to do, then we wouldn't really be uh, confused. Uh, but sometimes men come along and try to give their own commentary. I'm giving you a commentary right now. What can I say? I'm human. I'm fallible. So check it out. Let's keep reading. So Tim Hegg says, um, uh, if God says it's edible, then we shouldn't. it shouldn't be ruled as unclean by man. But 
Um, he says it's on this basis, the fact that God declares food clean and unclean and man comes along and changes things. It's on this basis that Paul himself emphatically declares that nothing is unclean in and of itself. So um, if God gives the green light, thumbs up, the green check mark on an animal and says, Israel, as long as you follow the procedures for uh, killing it, draining its blood, and offering up the parts to me that I command you to do, otherwise you can eat this food, then um, in, its, in, in and of itself, nothing's unclean. But keep in mind that God's definition of what animals were permissible was given 3,500 years ago from our perspective, maybe 1,500 years ago or so from Paul's perspective. But um, what ends up happening is by the time we reach Paul's culture in the first century, there were extra cultural terms, man-made terms, that were being used to describe foodstuffs that were that you might encounter in any given situation. Thus, I'm just going to pick on Greek for a moment because the New Testament is written in Greek. The extra word that Paul has to bring into his discussion, the koinos word that we've been introduced to in this particular study, this word defines items that are handled by everyone, common items, and thus what Paul has to to help differentiate to his Roman crowd is that God says this is clean or unclean, but now man can come along and add extra definitions to suit his um, furthering uh, explanation of what he might may or may not deem as permissible. In in general cases, there's nothing really wrong with that. Um, you know, everybody has their own uh, food requirements and needs and uh, things like that. So let's keep looking at this. Um, uh, Tim Hanks says, uh, that is, if God has declared it clean, some animal or some food, and therefore edible, then generally speaking, it should not be otherwise considered. So God says, um, uh, beef from cows is clean. The animal itself is clean. The food you derive from that animal is therefore deemed as clean. It's, it's something you can partake of. You can eat it. Um, so if a man comes along and says, okay, yes, it is cow, but I don't, I don't think it's clean, well then, on the surface, that would be a misuse and a disruption of the biblical man. So that's kind of what Paul is getting at, that's what Tim Hague's getting at. However, generally speaking, that would be true, but um, I think what Paul would agree with is that individually we have a right to uh, reject food if it doesn't fit our diet, if it doesn't fit our um, um you know our dietary need, um, our our medical need. You know there are people who have allergies. There are people who are who choose to be vegetarian or vegan or things like that. I don't think the Bible prohibits vegetarianism. I'm quite certain it doesn't. It doesn't prohibit veganism, and I'm certain that God would take into account allergens to certain foods or things like that. Allergies. So. Um, God is simply generically saying, "Here's a food. Then, if if you if if your body can handle it, I then I will allow it. You're not disobeying me by partaking of it. Um, if that's something that's on your diet and you choose to eat it, and your body will allow you to eat it without any complication, God says, I'm fine with that. Paul would also agree. Paul is not going to uh, disrupt what what God says. But 
what we have to factor in in this conversation is that by the first century, religious Jews were living um, in greater numbers in and amongst non-Jewish people and non-religious people. Paganism was a constant threat in the first century. And therefore, even though there was food that was permissible from God's list, such as uh, beef and lamb, I'm just picking on these two just because they're easier to understand, if those animals were used in, in conjunction with an idolatrous ceremony or they were sold in the common marketplace, it was quite likely that your average Jew would um, avoid that type of um, uh, food. He would, um, if at all possible, seek out uh, some type of kosher butcher or kosher supermarket or something like that. Somewhere where he knew that the food was not used in idolatrous practices and it wasn't handled by too many people. Hegg says that this viewpoint is correct will be seen in verse 20, where Paul actually includes the word food. So we know he's not just saying all things are clean, all things are unclean. He's not talking about everything in general. It is a discussion on food. And then Hegg quotes verse 20, quote, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things, indeed, are clean. I think the best way to understand that word clean there is to assign the definition, the nuance of innocent, that is, unspoken for until a man or someone, even God, comes along and declares it otherwise. Um, and even then, he's not talking about all things. When he says all things are clean, he doesn't mean everything that you encounter is clean. This is obviously not the case. Um, so we can't get hyper-literal from our English or even the Greek when Paul says... <clears throat> Sorry about that. When Paul says all things are clean, um, obviously idolatry is unclean. Idolatry I, defiles you. Um, uh, sin itself is not clean. Um, you know, pornography is not clean. Adultery is not clean. Stealing is not clean. Murder is not clean. Um, you know, there are any number of items or uh, things that exist in the world today that are not clean. I don't really have to explain that to a Christian, do I? Paul doesn't mean everything's clean. It's the context of food that he's talking about when he says all things are clean. All food items are the things that he means, are indeed innocent. And even still, we have to massage this word clean. Taken in its hyper-literal form from the English, Paul isn't saying that, hey, see that pig over there? It's food. It's clean. Eat it. See that shellfish over there? See that shrimp? See that lobster? See that clam? See that oyster? See that octopus? See that squid? It's clean. That is not really what Paul is saying. We'll get to that here in a second. He concludes by reminding us that Paul's point must be that everything that qualifies as food, i.e. everything that God permits to be eaten, is clean. So the list of clean and unclean is defined by God. Which animals are permissible, which animals are prohibited. God sets the standard. We do have the right as men to come along and make some adjustments to suit our personal needs. So God says you can eat it if your body of will, will digest it. You know, uh, here's a it's silly case in point, but you guys will kind of follow along with me. God says that um, beef is clean. It's permissible. It's edible. It comes from an animal that's de uh, defined as clean. Therefore, you can eat it, Israel. Does this mean now that I should feed beef 
to an infant, to a six-month-old baby who doesn't even have any teeth? The answer is obviously no. But the question is asked, why wouldn't I feed beef to a baby? Well, the answer is brought in because a baby can't handle that. His digestive system is not designed to handle that type of solid food. He needs milk. He can't handle that food. So in this silly example, I say silly because everyone should be able to understand from common sense where I'm going. In this example, beef is an is an unclean food. It's not permissible for him. He cannot partake of that food item. Why? Is it because that food is unclean? No, not necessarily. It's because his body can't handle it. So even as adults, we grow up with certain food, like I said, either allergies or sensitivities or etc. etc. So for us to uh, abstain from what God says is otherwise permissible is not a disobedient um, act. It's not disobedience to the Torah to not eat meat. It's not disobedient to be vegan or vegetarian. There's nothing biblically um, wrong with being a vegan or a vegetarian or having allergies, right? That's not a sin or anything like that. This is just kind of common sense theology. So um, Heg simply trying to bring up the point that Paul would agree that God sets the standard, and then if you have to make your own personal adjustment based on what you, how you know your body's going to react to certain foods, then you can go ahead and do that, and that's fine. What you don't have the right to do, as I'm going to say uh, in, my, in my next part of my commentary, what you don't have the right to do is to say, God says that animal's unclean, and you're going to come along and say, no, I disagree. It's clean. Paul himself would not have had that mindset, so let's pick up my commentary. Again, just to be absolutely clear, this is me talking, I maintain that Shaul is not teaching us. He's not teaching us that the dietary list of Leviticus 11 has been discarded. This is an incorrect hermeneutic or um, interpretive lens by which to view and read your Bible. If you read your New Testament as a Christian and you've been taught that the New Testament has superseded or overtaken or done away with the Torah or Law of Moses, then it's natural for you to read into the things that Paul's saying, like where he says, um, uh, nothing is unclean in of itself, all true, all things are clean. It's natural for you to take those English definitions of clean and unclean that Paul is, is using and um, compare those to what Moses wrote in Leviticus 11 and choose between Moses and Paul and based on your theology and your interpretation and your hermeneutic um, lens, that is your bias, you will choose to be on the side of Paul because you've been taught over and over again that the New Testament is is the more sure uh, part of the Bible. It's the established part. You know, Jesus came to establish the New Testament uh, with his blood, ratified it with his blood. The death on the cross is effectual, etc., etc. So it's natural to be taught. I mean, every good and well-meaning pastor that I've ever listened to or examined or um, interacted with all agrees that the New Testament is is effectual. It's a part of the Bible that that uh, God wants His people to uh, stand up and pay attention to, and it's unfortunate that the uh, tradition that we've also been handed in, in general Christianity. I know this is not true across the board, so I'm not trying to just paint a broad stroke. And, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to to label everyone this way. But the generic, general, overarching perspective is that the law has been done away with. It's been relaxed. It's somehow been replaced by the law of Christ, or it's been fulfilled by Jesus. 
in a in a way that renders it um, useless to your average Gentile Christian, um, meaning it's no longer necessary to concern ourselves with those things. So this is the general perspective. Rabbinic Judaism disagrees, obviously, because they reject the New Testament, and I think that's to their detriment. However, however, Messianic Judaism, of which I am a part, comes along, accepts the New Testament as authoritative, but at the same time, uh, maintains their acceptance of Moshe as authoritative. And that's where I think Paul's going to be um, found as well, as an author. He's a Messianic Jew. He believes in the truth of Moses, that it is established, that it's not uprooted, that it's not been done away with. Paul does not teach that the laws are abrogated. But what Paul does do is bring in the truths of the apostolic scriptures that he's giving people, you know, what we would later call the New Testament, and helping us to understand how we can walk this out, not under our own power, but under the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Here's what I have to say. In fact, you know, going off of this idea that Paul didn't teach a law-free gospel. In fact, Shaul, Paul's name in Hebrew, Shaul is really reiterating what his own teacher, the master, Yeshua, taught him. What is it? All is clean. What do we mean, all is clean? All food that God says is permissible as food is clean in and of itself. Really, regardless of what type of contact it had with something extraneous, like idol worship or uh, people touching it in the common marketplace. The food is clean, and as long as you know this truth, if the Spirit has um, um, convinced your conscience that God is greater than all, God is greater than an idol, God is greater than than an unclean uh, Gentile that you might meet in the marketplace who cut that meat up for you, God is greater than the kosher butcher, God is greater than the pagan supermarket, God is greater than all of that, if God says it's clean, then we can receive it with, with, um, with, with prayer and with thanksgiving. I'm kind of paraphrasing another passage that I that I uh, know you guys are familiar with. All really is innocent. All really is clean in that regard. Again, Paul is not giving any type of endorsement to idolatry itself. If you know that a food was offered up to idols, it would be better to avoid it for the sake of conscience, for the sake of your fellow brothers, uh, Christians in the community that you uh, are involved in, uh, really, generally speaking, for the sake of association, uh, just steer clear of that type of um, activity altogether, obviously. And uh, better yet, you know, just say no to that type of food if you know it's been involved there. But generally speaking, um, generically speaking, then uh, the food itself is still innocent. Um, it's still, it doesn't change the definition that God assigned to it. Uh, the animal itself is clean. The food itself comes from a clean source. Um, again, what we're doing is we're working through Romans chapter 14. For those of you who are just now joining us or anything like that, these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Arobin Lyman Hana V. You can find my teachings online at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join us week after week for our live internet studies. Um, let me just plug real quick. Uh, uh, my YouTube channel as well. Uh, you can find my uh, teachings online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate 
Torah Ministries, all one word. Likewise, these audio commentaries get uploaded to the um, these podcasts get uploaded to iTunes, and you can find my audio commentaries there. Let's continue in my commentary. So Paul was taught by Yeshua himself, all is clean, meaning what God the Father gave to the Son, the Son gave to Paul. So we have this unbroken theology from God the Father to um, the Messiah to the disciple Paul, and therefore there's no need to assume or to suggest that God says it's clean, Jesus says it's clean, but then Paul comes along and says it's unclean, or reverse that. God says it's unclean, Jesus says it's unclean, but Paul comes along and says it's clean. If we allow for that to, to drive our theological interpretation of the Bible, we will run into all manner of error and slide down the slippery slope of, of um, uh, interpolation instead of interpretation. We'll, in, we'll slide down the slippery slope of um, eisegesis instead of exegesis. We want to take away from the Bible what it says. We don't want to insert our own meanings into the text. And to suggest that Paul is disagreeing with Moses, who would, of course, be speaking for God, or to say that Paul's disagreeing with Yeshua, who would obviously agree with Moses, who, of course, is agreeing with God, if we believe that Paul breaks that chain of, of interpretation from God to Moses to Jesus to Paul, if, if Paul makes a break and suddenly comes up with his own definitions for the sake of Gentile Christianity, well, then we've done a disservice to ourselves and to Paul and to Yeshua and to Moses and to God himself. Okay, so the master taught Paul that all is clean. That is, until a man comes along and declares it, otherwise. Now, again, this word clean in the English is what's going to trip us up, or unclean. In the Hebrew, we have a definition that's supplied by God, applied to a certain food item or an animal. This food is unclean because the animal that it derives from is unclean. Therefore, Israel, it's unclean. By the time we get to the New Testament, we still have the same underlying Hebrew definitions of animals and food, but we have an extra man's definition, the word unclean in the English, but it's a different Greek word that's not trying to convey the same thing as unclean in the Hebrew. Instead, the Greek word used for unclean, that's very uh, common in the New Testament, the word koinos, doesn't reflect the intrinsic nature of the animal that God defined. Instead, it's a man's way of coming along and saying, the food, the animal itself is still unclean, but the food that's derived from that animal is common. It's unsanctified. It's been handled by too many people. It's been touched by everybody, and therefore, it's, it's, if anything, it's just contaminated in the regards of the food the underlying food is safe if it weren't contaminated by outside uh, contact with with too many elements so here's a good example apples as far as i can tell are safe to eat as long as they're clean as long as they're washed as long as they're um without pesticide residues and things like that okay so just 
your general garden variety apple that you could buy from a supermarket, take it home, wash it underwater, or you can use a little, what is that spray called, fitty or something like that, that fruit wash. Okay, so you clean it off, and from that perspective, at that point in time, just bite into it. Everything's fine. Generally speaking, most people would agree with my... Um, uh, the example here. However, let's suppose you drop the apple on the floor, it rolls across the floor of a dirty floor right after you washed it, or better yet, uh, you drop it in the dirt. Like, let's say you're outside, you wash it in your outside faucet, and you drop it on the ground, it rolls across the dirt, right? What happens to the surface of the apple, especially if it was still wet? You guys already know where I'm going with this. It's going to pick up dirt as it rolls along on the ground, or dust, or anything, any other kind of contaminant um, as it rolls along the ground. Question, would anybody just pick that up, uh, apple up and start eating it right there? Would you bite into an apple that just rolled along in the dirt after you just washed it? I hope you don't, right? M maybe as kids we might do this because we're not really as informed. Um, but most adults wouldn't do that. What would you do? Well, the easy solution is just to wash it off again. In this example, the dirt represents an extra level of contamination that we as humans tack on to the otherwise permissible clean apple. It was clean by God's standards. It's permissible food stuff. And yet, because it rolled along the dirt for a short while, we come along and say, oh, it's contaminated until we remove the contamination. That's kind of what's going on here in the, in the Romans 14 passage, I believe. If a man comes along and declares it unclean or unfit for consumption or defiled or handled by too many people or contaminated, well, then that's fine. That's fine as long as we don't argue over it. I say in my commentary, in the end, and speaking of within the context of arguing over uh, particular items, in the end, it's our petty differences and pride that eventually divides us. We already know that in the first century that there was a sort of class caste system being practiced um, among Israelites, among uh, religious people groups, where um, religious Jews would kind of um, assign a pecking order to people groups, particularly anyone who wasn't an Israelite or anyone who wasn't Jewish. Um, uh, um, there was a, a, a place for religious uh, pride and judgmental attitudes to develop among religious people if they felt that, hey, I'm walking a holier-than-thou road. Um, I'm more righteous than you based on the commandments that I keep or based on uh, the practices that I follow, the halacha that I'm aligned with. I'm more righteous in God's eyes and therefore more precious to God based on the, the, the commandments that I do and therefore God loves me more and things like that. And if you want to be as special as me, you have to follow the, the rules that I follow and then you too can be a righteous person. And so it created, uh, like I said, a, a, a judgmental um, uh, situation, a, a social setting where people were, were uh, uh, you know, looking down their nose at someone who was supposedly less than. And Paul was picking up on this in the Messianic communities. Jews and Gentiles judging one another over the practices that they followed or didn't follow, um, you know, based on their interpretation of certain passages out of the Bible, things like that. In the end, these types of differences need to be set aside because in Messiah, we've all been brought to the common place where we have been cleansed by his blood equally and we've been brought 
into his um into relationship with him into his kingdom into his presence equally irregardless of our social status our religious status our social upbringing our ethnicity our um our gender etc etc uh it's like the pastors always say the 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 ground is level at the foot of the cross. This doesn't mean that our distinctives are erased, right? We are still male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave free. You know, you can be a, a slave, come to Messiah, and still be a slave. You're just a Christian slave, right? Becoming a Christian doesn't automatically remove um, your social status. Um, uh, this is the point I'm trying to make. Um, so, Paul doesn't want Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, he doesn't want them fighting over the external differences that we have with one another, those external differences including the way that we understand uh, foodstuffs. Let me continue my commentary and then I'll close out this part tonight. Food, uh, I say food, simply becomes the innocent, and I'm playing with the word innocent there because the Greek word katharos translated as into English as clean. When Paul says true, all things are clean. The Greek word is katharos, and one of the nuances of that Greek word is innocent, meaning until someone comes along and declares it otherwise, the food in and of itself is, is an innocent partaker of the situation. Uh, I'm not talking about bringing in the intrinsic definition of the animal that God assigned. That's not what I mean by innocent. I'm talking about the man-made difference that comes along, definition that comes along, and says um, this is either clean or unclean. That's what I mean by innocent. So food is the innocent medium that we humans fight about, right? The food fight that breaks out between us, pun intended there. In closing, I say, Shaul states that food should not be the point of contention. He says it this way. He says that um, um, don't destroy uh, with food... Uh, don't destroy for the sake of food uh, your brother that uh, I'm really butchering that. Don't destroy your brother whom the one for whom Christ died with this for the sake of food or something to that effect. Don't use food as the weapon to destroy what is otherwise a precious person in God's sight. Food is important, um, but it's not the the go all everything end all be all do all it's not the most important thing keeping the commandments of god is important don't get me wrong i don't believe we should do away with the torah in order to simply um appease our brother we we wouldn't use that algorithm uh in other situations right you know i have a friend that i'm trying to witness to on the street uh, i wouldn't really call him a friend maybe he's just a stranger i've, I've never met him i'm witnessing him on the street he's a drug user and he's an adulterer and he's a thief and a murderer this doesn't mean that i condone his lifestyle so that i can bring him into the gospel bring him into the kingdom that doesn't work i don't i don't i don't um uh, blatantly uh, um, disagree with commandments of god or set aside the commandments of god in order to supposedly win this stranger to the lord we don't we don't do wrong in order to get to get a chance to do right that's bad theology that's bad ethics that's bad morality that's that's just bad altogether right paul would never condone that type of behavior either he he's not when he says i became all things to all men so that i might win some it doesn't mean he suddenly became um the same type of sinner so that he could be at that same level with this the person he's witnessing to and we shouldn't practice it either I don't know of any missionaries who travel to other parts of the world and suddenly become engaged in those idolatrous and um, uh, kind of witchcraft-involved uh, 
practices that you might meet if you encounter some tribal uh, native in a foreign land you know that you're trying to witness to you don't suddenly engage in their idolatrous practices so that you can win them to the Lord that doesn't work so using that same uh, logic and algorithm and line of reasoning we wouldn't expect Paul to endorse the idea of uh, I meet a stranger on the street and he has no idea what is kosher and what isn't so he just eats anything and everything he can put into his mouth Paul wouldn't endorse me come along and saying to him hey let's just go out and have a ham sandwich so I can witness to you right that doesn't work so we uphold Torah we strengthen Torah we establish Torah but at the same time we don't use the Torah and our understanding of food and the commandments of God as weapons we are Torah keepers, not Torah terrorists. Okay, Shaul states that food should not be the point of contention, and I say in my commentary that this sounds amazingly like Shaul's instructions to Timothy in his first letter. And I'm going to stop right here because we're out of time for this segment, segment one. We'll pick this up um, next week. We'll pull this quote from the book of Timothy and see how this fits in with the theology of what Paul's trying to um, convey to us. But right now, let me um, shrink the uh, my web page for a second and uh, uh, just let you know, these are the live internet studies and um, this is episode number 162. The meeting date is November 13th, 2021 for the USA date. Um, and we meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. In the hour-long time that we meet, there are two 30-minute segments. First segment that we just finished is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My! And that's part 78 that we just finished. Uh, segment two that we're about to turn to is uh, Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper three. Who, what is the Holy Spirit? We're in part 94 tonight. And if we have time, I'd like to, and if I remember, I'd like to watch the um, video entitled, What Did the Apostle Paul Mean by the Mystery? And as I mentioned, take a moment uh, to go over and visit my website, my YouTube uh, website um, uh, channel at youtube.com, uh, uh, C forward slash C forward slash take take for our ministries and get involved with all the uh, resources that I make available there as well. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's take about 30 minutes to go through the notes. We are in the middle of looking at a series of passages about the Holy Spirit. If we're going to give the Bible its proper representation, we need to start from the earlier parts of the Bible, work our way to the later parts of our Bible. So we already went back through some passages out of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. We saw how that it's natural to associate the Spirit of God with God himself. That's the natural um, way to interpret the passages, and there's nothing wrong with that, given the fact that we're dealing with a God who has revealed himself little by little to, uh, to humans, to his creation over time. But now we're ready to start turning to the New Testament. These are the words of Yeshua. Let's pick up our uh, commentary tonight in John 14, 17, ESV. We left off with this last week, so we'll start with this this week. Yeshua says, speaking of this promise of the Spirit, he's talking to the disciples, he's talking about the, the comforter that the Father is going to send, that he himself is going to send. He says, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You, speaking of the disciples, you know him before he dwells with you and will be in 
you. We're asking this question, we're entering this question, who or what spirit is inside of us as believers? Is it the generic spirit of God that's in us outside of any understanding and recognition of the Messiah? Or is it actually the Holy Spirit who's in us with the understanding that the Holy Spirit is very God himself and is also the Spirit of Messiah? Is that the better way to understand the Spirit? It's not entirely difficult to understand that non-Trinitarians who do not believe in the third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit are going to assign to Yeshua's words and everywhere else in the Bible that the Spirit being spoken of in every given passage is in fact the Spirit of God, aka God's very own Spirit, or depending on which denomination you hark from, it's going to be this impersonal force of God that's uh, controlling your actions. So those are the two general options that non-Trinitarians take. It's either the Spirit of God, in other words, it's not any third person of the Trinity or second person of the Trinity, it's not the Spirit of Jesus or anything like that, it's actually just God's very own Spirit, or it's an impersonal force uh, of God who's not even really God's spirit. It's just a power that's that's emanating from God, kind of like the force flowing from uh, from God's fingertips that's empowering you to, to walk and talk and be obedient, etc., etc., kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses' version of the spirit. But I'm a Trinitarian, and I disagree with those two kind of abstract views of the spirit of God. I maintain, and I've said this over and over going in my commentary, so I'm going to say it again. I maintain that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the Bible, that by the time we get to the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, the Chadashah, whatever you want to call it, the New Testament, um, the latter Ketuvim, I heard one Messianic rabbi refer to them. When we get to this part of our Bible, we've got enough of the... Um, revelation of God that has been unfolded before our eyes that we can now understand that the Spirit is himself a third person who goes forth from God the Father and he's separate and distinct from the man known as Jesus and it is also separate and distinct from the Spirit that is God himself, because God himself is a spirit, this third person known as the Holy Spirit can do the will of God, and yet in his ontological makeup, that is his very definition, the, the, the homoousian, the stuff that he's made up of, he's full deity. He's very God himself. He's, he, he's, he belongs to the Godhead. So he's not separate from God in being, but he's separate from God in person. And that's the mystery of the Trinity that I hold to. So when Yeshua says here in John 14 that the Father is going to send the Spirit, I don't think Yeshua is referring to God simply infusing the believers with, the, with God's very own Spirit in the personal sense, in the ontological sense, yes, it's very God that is going to come and take up residency within us as believers. But from a person perspective, the, the mystery of it is that it's a third person, and so God himself isn't isn't divesting of his own very spirit uh, to come take up residence within us. There's a third person that's entering into us. And yet, in the mystery of all, it is actually the spirit of Messiah, as we're going to see it when we get to Romans here in a moment. So, um, but from this at this point in time, since Yeshua is still speaking to them face to face, it would be kind of weird to think of Yeshua's spirit entering into them the way a man's spirit could somehow enter into another body. Um, I'm a human. Yeah, surprise, surprise, right? I'm a human being. 
there is no way that I can put my spirit into another human being. It's not possible. And even if it were possible, the host that's known as Ariel would cease to exist. I would die, right? I can't take a part of my spirit and divide it up in any way, shape, or fashion and give some to another human being. I can't breathe into another person and suppose that my spirit is moving into that other person's body. That doesn't work. In comics, it works. In movies, it works. You know, in science fiction, it works. Uh, in the occult, they even think that that probably is working. Um, but it doesn't work in real life. So it would probably be kind of spooky for the disciples to think that Yeshua was trying to let them know, hey, the spirit of truth that I'm talking about right now, it's actually my own spirit. He's going to come inside you. He's going to take up residence within you, right? That part, that aspect of who Yeshua was, still kind of being developed in their mind. Heck, they even ever had a problem kind of grasping the totality of the fact that Yeshua is very one with the Father. Uh, he would explain these things to them, you know, I and the Father are one, but they're looking at him and they're picturing God who is enthroned in heaven and they're trying to put that together. Am I looking at God? Am I looking at his son? Who am I talking with here, right? So that part and aspect of the, of the, the nature, of the trying nature of God, wasn't as maybe even developed um, to the disciples, even as it is now. I think we really have a little bit bigger picture because we've got more resources available to us. They didn't even have the totality of the apostolic scriptures to fall back into and to have the articulated words like the way Paul's going to write them later on. They didn't have all that yet. Um, they were kind of living it out right there in the moment. And so I, I think it's probably that they weren't really envisioning Yeshua uh, coming inside of them, they they didn't even fully understand that his death and resurrection yet. They were you know they were arguing with him uh, about these the concepts. You know, oh no, Lord, you're not going to die. You're not going to go to the cross. You're going to be with us always, right? And, you know, and Yeshua had to to to, to um, kind of correct him. You know, get thee behind me, Satan, speaking to Peter. You know, huh, you're not going to stop me from going and accomplishing the missions that God has set before me, my Father. Right? I've got to go to the cross. I've got to do this thing. So. Um, we spent a lot of time looking at this verse. Let's move on. I think you guys are kind of following what I'm referring to there. Let's look at the next passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, KJV, quote, And they were all filled, speaking of the disciples there at Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with each other tongues as, and speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is a very familiar passage, especially if you've been raised charismatic. Um, do we Imagine, Luke is doing the writing here in the book of Acts, do we imagine that the Holy Ghost and the Spirit in this passage is the Spirit of God? Do we imagine that it is the Spirit of Jesus? It's quite natural, I believe, at face value, to understand Luke's words as referring to the third person of the Trinity. He says the Holy Ghost, which I know is old KJV lingo for talking about spirits and things like that. Other modern versions say Holy Spirit. If you've got a Messianic version, it might say Ruach HaKodesh or something like that, Ruach HaLokim. Um, the point being is it's natural to interact with this passage as the third person of the Trinity. We don't have to try and think of God kind of um, taking some of his power in his own personal spirit, uh, the Spirit of God himself, and 
pushing it and filling the, the disciples. Um, and yet, at the same time, keep in mind that is part of what's taking place. But it's natural for us by this point in time, I believe, to interact with the language of the Bible and to allow the um, words of the scripture to give us and impart to us the picture that God is revealing himself more and more to us in um, progressive fashion. We started out very, very early on in my example of this study that God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. There's nothing there that says that Jesus is the creator in verse 1 of Genesis 1.1. Uh, the very next a uh, verse says that the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, verse 2. There's nothing real in the verse there that says that it's a Spirit of Jesus that hovered over the surface of the waters. Heck, it doesn't even say, and the Holy Ghost hovered over the surface of the waters. What's the point I'm trying to bring up? Earlier on, as we read the earlier parts of our Bible, God starts very simple. He reveals things to us, uh, starting with the very basics, and then progressively builds on that understanding as the scriptures are unfolded to us, as time goes on, and as we interact with this God that we serve, we learn more and more and more about him. God uh, gives a little bit more and more revelation that we can handle as we as we begin to uh, strengthen our relationship with him as our father. Heck, even the word father isn't even introduced at the very beginning. It doesn't say in the beginning the father created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say that in the beginning God the father created the heavens and the earth. Right? Yeshua speaks of God his Father over and over again, and yet that's not the way Moses talks. The point I'm trying to bring up in our um, discussions about Trinity and our disagreements between Unitarians and Trinitarians and things like that is the Bible lends language to us that we have to interact with. We can't assume that Moses meant God the Father but he just didn't write it. All we have is what the Bible says. It doesn't say God the Father created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say God the Son created the heavens and the earth. Does that mean that God the Father isn't the one being spoken of there? No. Does it mean that God the Son isn't the one being spoken of there? No, again, I believe in the mystery of the Trinity that we now know because we have the later parts of the Bible. We can then go back, right? We can then go back and fill in in our minds some of the missing terminology, but we can't actually add the words ourselves. But we can add the greater understanding. And thus, when Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit hovered over the surface of the waters, Paul can now read those passages with eyes opened by Messiah, with a heart filled with the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit himself. Paul can now read those passages and in Corinthians and in Colossians, he can fill in what John has already supplied. The Messiah, the Word made flesh, is the Creator. Jesus is that Word made flesh. He is that Word that was with God and is God, was God in the very beginning. He is the Creator of all things, John tells us, and Paul tells us. It is the very Spirit of God who is the Spirit of Messiah, Paul is going to tell us here in Romans in a moment, who is the Holy Spirit who filled them and the day of Pentecost. It is that spirit who hovered over the surface of waters. So in hindsight, we can fill in the missing gaps, but 
when Moses was writing, the revelation hadn't been spelled out yet, the scroll hadn't been unrolled yet, to use that analogy, and thus it would be wrong for us to anachronistically put words in Moses' mouth. Moses didn't say the Father created the heavens and the earth. But we know that God, who is timeless, who cannot change, was, in fact, the Father God back then, right? Remember we talked about the 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 the, the um, forgotten uh, monarchy of the Father when we talked about Doctor um, Doctor uh, Bo Branson's uh, theology. So let's keep reading through this commentary. Um, let's read a few more verses here, uh, picking up uh, Luke's. Uh, writings again, Acts 7.55, NASB this time, quote, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, this is the, the account of Stephen, when he's being stoned by um, those uh, Jewish people who didn't want to listen to him explain that they were sinners and that they crucified the Messiah, the very Lord of life. They put him to death because of their uh, disbelief. They didn't want to hear that. It was cutting to the heart. They were being convicted. And so they picked up stones and they started taking his life. They were murdering him for something for which he should not have been stoned. Right? They were guilty of murder right there on the spot. But what was Stephen's answer? Did he say to them in his last dying breath, I'm going to get you back someday. I'll have my revenge. I'll rise from the grave as a zombie or whatever, you know. I'll come back and I'll destroy you all. No, he didn't say all that. Look at what he says. But he being full of the Holy Spirit. This is another triadic passage. I'll tell you why here in a second. He, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. End quote. Now, this is a really cool passage. I say it's triadic. It's not necessarily definitely 100%, without a doubt, you know, hands down, um, telling us, you know, case closed that, that God is a trinity. It's not really saying that. What it does is it brings to the table of discussion terminology that uses all three persons of the Godhead. That's what I mean by triadic. If you want to put it in your Trinity arsenal, yes, be 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 assured that you can do that. This is a great verse to have in your Trinity um, uh, arsenal. If you want to have Trinity discussions with, with skeptics and Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, Iglesianic Christo, Worldwide Church of God, uh, um, um, you know, those types of uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and um, other people groups who don't follow. I'll put a little chart on my uh, screen that shows all the different groups that I've kind of become aware of that are non-Trinitarian. Uh, you know, oneness Pentecostals and things like that. This is a great verse to have in your arsenal because this, like the uh, like the immersion pa uh, verse that we looked at earlier. Let me see if I can just grab it. Do I have it in my passage? Uh, I didn't bring it into um, my uh, 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 reference here, but this verse references all three persons of the Godhead without saying, and all three are one or something like that. We have Stephen full of third person, Holy Spirit, and yet looking into heaven and seeing first person, God, and second person, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Clearly, there's at least two people mentioned here. We have God and we have Jesus. That's a separate that's separate people right there. But it says he's full of the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke is a New Testament writer. He's also full of the Holy Spirit. He's a believer. He's a Messianic Jew, or he's a Messianic proselyte Gentile. 
I think that he's probably a proselyte Gentile is my understanding of Luke's uh, uh, perspective. Um, but either way, Luke could have easily, under the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Remember, the scriptures belong to the Spirit of God ultimately, right? The men wrote it, but they were inspired by the Spirit who carried them along. Luke could have easily written, but he, being full of the Spirit of God, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and the Word of God uh, inside of God the Father, or something like that. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is Luke could have described and used language to articulate a Unitarian, non-multi-personal um, 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 God. He could have described this being without any personhood uh, attributes. He, he, you know, Luke didn't have to uh, use Holy Spirit. He didn't have to use Jesus' name there. He could have simply said, in fact... He, he could have simply said, and he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw God. End of sentence. End of verse. Um, but Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and going off the assumption that God doesn't choose words arbitrarily, that God the Spirit chooses all of his words intentionally, that what uh, the Holy Spirit wanted written is what uh, Luke wrote, you know, not notwithstanding that there probably were some copious errors here and there, some manuscript scribal um, uh, errors here and there, or additions or uh, subtractions, uh, either intentionally or non-intentionally. But generically speaking, as far as we can tell, using the manuscript families that have been made available and survived down down through the sands of time, this is a reliable transmission of what took place when Stephen was being stoned, A, and a reliable account from Luke's writing perspective. Was Luke right there witnessing the event? I don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the chronology to make sure. Um, and even if he wasn't there, the Holy Spirit gave the story to him after the fact and told him what to write, kind of like what the um, gospel writers did, writing after the fact, some of them writing after the fact uh, of, of what took place of, you know, in Yeshua's time. Um, Paul writing after the fact about certain events of Yeshua. Um, Moses writing after the fact about what happened in creation, right? I mean, here's another case in point. Moses wrote that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. Please tell me that you don't believe that Moses was there when God created the heavens and the earth. Last time I checked, no one was there when God created the heavens and the earth, except God himself. Maybe the angels are there too, yeah. Uh, Yeshua, the word made flesh, uh, the word eternal was there. The Holy Spirit was there. Um, but And Satan may or may not have been there. It depends on what time you place his fall. But the point being is man wasn't there yet. And yet Moses wrote, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. How did Moses know that? Well, obviously God told him after the fact that this is what happened. Do we believe Moses' account? Absolutely. Is it factual? As far as I can tell. Is it authoritative? 100%. Well, then we must use that same criteria with the verse here. So Luke wrote that the Holy Spirit was was who was filling Stephen, not God, not Jesus. And yet Stephen looked into heaven and saw God 
and Jesus. He didn't see the Holy Spirit. He didn't look into spirit into heaven and saw the Holy Spirit standing at the right hand of God. He didn't look into heaven and see Moses even standing at the right hand of God. Um, it doesn't say he being full of, of Jesus looked intently into heaven and saw the Holy the glory of the Holy Spirit. You know, if we mix and match and swap around the titles, the persons that that disrupts the whole um, uh, economic trinity model. So this is the point I'm trying to make. This is the exercise we have to deal with. This, the, the Bible is authoritative, in case you're getting lost in my examples and things like this. This is exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of trinity. We're having discussions on the nature and functions of God in his nature, in his being, you know, as one God, and yet in his revelation and... Ex and um, uh, 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 functions as revealed to us as three persons. So, uh, uh, this is what we have to deal with. Um, this is really, this next verse here, as I look in my uh, uh, um, commentary, this passage in Romans really is uh, kind of the kicker verse that kind of really um, uh, disrupts the Unitarian model, is my, in my opinion. And so for that reason, we're going to stop right here, and we're going to leave it on a cliffhanger. We'll pick this up next week with Romans 8, 9 through 11, where Paul just masterfully interweaves his understanding of God, Yeshua, and the Holy Spirit in terms of the Spirit's work inside of us as believers. It really helps us to understand this, uh, uh, answering the question of which Spirit dwells inside of us, who is inside of us. We don't have to think it's three spirits. It's one Spirit that dwells inside of us. But the language that the Bible supplies for us is so wonderfully rich and diverse and unique as to not allow us to simplistically say that it's only the Spirit of God or it's only this impersonal force or that's only the spirit of, of Yeshua, or that's only the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's wonderfully rich and diverse the way that the Bible uh, has been preserved for us. And so we'll turn to that next week, but that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. Let's wind down our study and turn real quick to our liturgy. I think I'll only read English tonight. We'll save the Hebrew and the Greek for next week. The liturgy is from Genesis chapter 12, and I'll simply read verses 1 through 3. This is the story of Abraham being called by God to leave his home, um, his, his family, his homeland of Ur of the Chaldees, and to go to a place that God's going to show him, and to become this covenant partner with God in bringing about the family of God into the world and bringing Israel into the world so that the Messiah himself could be born and then bless all the peoples of the world. Here's the way that Moses uh, penned it, starting in verse 1, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, he hasn't even had his name changed yet to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and to your kindred and to your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And verse 3, this is ESV by the way, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's the English rendering from the Tanakh. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll read slightly more passages here. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through uh, 8. 
uh, for our uh, English rendering of the Apostolic Scriptures. All right, so starting in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then the final posic, verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and now here's our quote from uh, Genesis chapter 12, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, quote, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Of course, that phrase is used elsewhere in the Torah, so I can't be dogmatic that Paul's quoting it from Genesis 12, uh, verse 3. could be quoting it from any of the other passages that uh, talk about uh, Abraham being a blessing to the nations. But that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Um, let's turn now to the short little video. Watch the video on the topic of why did the or what did the Apostle Paul mean by the mystery when he talks in his letters about the mystery of the gospel and the mystery and things like that. What did he mean by that? And after the video is over, we'll simply dismiss and close in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and E-Bible. Of course, that's me. Alright, let's look at our question for tonight. What did the Apostle Paul mean by the mystery? Alright, let's take a look at this mystery. What's so mysterious about this mystery? The question doesn't specify which mystery of Paul's they're inquiring about. As others have pointed out, Paul used the word mystery, the Greek mysterion, to refer to varying topics. Therefore, I only want to single out one of those usages for us tonight. Quote, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the same verse we read in our liturgy. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're going a little farther than we did in our liturgy. That's verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3. Now let's jump over to another part of Ephesians and see where Paul mentions this, where he continues to mention this concept of mystery as we keep going. 
Uh, quote, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And that's Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. So Paul is talking about something that's mysterious. The prevailing view of the sages of the first century held to the common belief that Jewish Israel and Jewish Israel alone shared a place in the world to come, viz. we're saved, we're going to heaven. That's what we mean by the world to come. Thus, if a non-Jew wished to enter into God's blessings and promises, such a person had to convert to Judaism and take on legally recognized Jewish ethnicity first. Hang? You're thinking, what? All right, let's talk about that. By contrast, Paul taught most assuredly that Gentiles were grafted into Israel this very same way that God counted Abraham as righteous in Genesis 15.6, which is, of course, faith in the promised word of the Lord. To be sure, this is one of the primary arguments delineated in the letter to the Galatians. So here's how it looks. We got covenant Israel. We got covenant Gentiles on one side. We have covenant Jews on the other side. And if you add the two together, this is the mystery of the gospel. It's that Israel is actually comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And this should be a familiar looking slide to those of you who've been following along my YouTube videos for any length of time. Covenant Israel, Jews and Gentiles together, side by side. Make sense so far? And it was a mystery to Jewish Israel. Why? Because for centuries, they thought that covenant membership into Israel was reserved for Jews only, and that the Torah, the law, was for Jews only. And that's right, they were blinded. However, Paul was sent by Yeshua Jesus to reveal the real truth behind this mystery. To be grafted into the family of God is to join oneself to a Jewish olive tree without having to succumb to any kind of man-made proselyte conversion policy whatsoever. Make sense? Let's keep reading. To this end, one becomes submissive to the instructions and righteousness of God and inherits the blessings of God whether he is of Gentile or Jewish stock. Wow, simple. All right, catch my podcasts, which are available on iTunes, search term Ariel Hanavi, or for those of you who prefer to watch your Torah teachings, subscribe to my YouTube channel. And don't forget to hit the little notifications that tells you when I'm uploading new videos, because I upload new content every week, okay? And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I'm so thankful to be a part of what you are doing in the earth today. I'm blessed to have uh, a community of students and Bible uh, people, Bible teachers and such that will help me to grow in my understanding of the word. Uh, they meet with me week after week and we discuss these topics and we grow together. None of us has all the answers, which is why we need one another to sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron. Continue to strengthen us and protect us and raise us up to be a voice in this very dark world. We'd be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Be shame Yeshua. Amen. Amen.